to Four Questions, I'm delighted to welcome Ben Selwyn, Professor of International Development at the University of Sussex. We're here to talk about his fascinating and slightly controversial new book, The Struggle for Development. So, Ben, you take on the consensus. What is the consensus in international development? Uh, thanks very much, Alice. Uh, yeah, so the consensus basically is based around a number of things. First of all, economic growth is the uh, alpha and omega of development. Everything should be centred and is centred and derives from, everything that is good derives from economic growth. Mm -hmm. Economic growth is the basis for human development, for capital development, for all kinds of development. Um, so economic growth is number one. How do we achieve economic growth? Well, the, the consensus over the last uh, 40 years with some uh, variations has basically been through uh, neoliberalization, which basically means global integration uh, and uh, lowering of barriers to trade and barriers to investment and barriers to hiring and firing workers. So you've got those two things together, global integration, neoliberalization and economic growth. And those are the kind of key, that is the consensus uh, kind of ingredients. And whenever you read The Economist or FT or any or World Bank publications, they all say that uh, this great combination has led to uh, a major fall in poverty and economic growth. So uh, they are uh, very happy with that. And of course they recognise issues and problems and there needs to be some tweaking according to them. But in general, uh, this ingredients of economic growth plus liberalisation leading to global integration uh, speeds up economic growth. And it's all based, I mean, it goes back in many ways to, I mean, they don't quote Adam Smith or Ricardo or anything else, but they talk about uh, the benefits of specialisation, benefits of um, expansion of the market um, and rising productivity all coming together, which is what Smith wrote about in The Wealth of Nations in uh, 1776. So, but is this sense, not correct? Will global economic integration and economic growth not reduce poverty? Is that not working? Well, <clears throat> if you... Okay, so they say that poverty has been reduced uh, significantly since the 1980s <clears throat> or 2000s. Mm based on this uh, combination of ingredients. And what they do is they use the uh, $1 a day poverty line, which from 2015 was $1 a day, one, sorry, $1.90 a day uh, purchasing power parity. And they use that as the benchmark to assess the amount of poverty uh, in the world. And they say, based on that poverty line, uh, poverty has uh, decreased uh, fundamentally. I mean, they're talking now about uh, under 10% of the world's population live in poverty. They're talking about with the Sustainable Development Goals about eliminating poverty by 2030. So that proves it all works. Globalisation reduces extreme poverty. That's great. Yeah, well, if you can measure things in order to get the results that you want, then yes, it does. But, I mean, their poverty line, and this is something people don't understand, including, I don't think, or I think they don't understand it either, um, because they've made so many mistakes people like Ravalion and Chen, the uh, kind of formulators of mm. this poverty line, they've made a huge amount of mistakes, which makes me think they don't really understand it. The point is, the $1 a day poverty line does not calculate uh, an individual's actual needs. It's a completely arbitrary, random figure. It does not calculate whether someone can live on the consumption level that $1 a day points So your to. argument here is the $1.90 is far too low? It's far too low. And it's not just me saying that. Mm. There are lots of people. Yeah, Lar Pritchett has said it. Lar Pritchett, Pritchett favours a ten dollar a day line. Yeah. Why do you think we should focus on a, on a higher line? I mean, because that would also be arbitrary, right? Absolutely. But wh wh why is it? Why does it enable us to understand poverty reduction and development better if we focus on a higher line? 
Well, first of all, I mean, he wrote that article, Dreaming of a World Without Poverty, mm -hmm. uh, in the mid to late 2000s. And he and he's a World Bank, a former World Bank a researcher, now is at the uh, Kennedy School, so he's very well recognised. And, um, you know, he talks about $1 a day, $5 a day, $10 a day uh, figures, and he says, that according to his calculations, by the mid-2000s, uh, there was something like 88% of the world's population living under the $10 a day poverty line. And he says, for the simple reason that anyone living above one or two or three or four or five dollars a day PPP mm. is still, by any kind of sensible assessment, uh, poor. Mm. Okay, so this raises the question of what is poor, which we can talk about in a second. So he puts the figure up to $10 a day, and mm. there are other people talking about $5 a day, and so on. And so by those figures, the majority of the world's population is poor. But still, his figure is still, exactly as you mentioned, arbitrary, random. It doesn't look at consumption uh, requirements. It doesn't look at livelihood requirements. It doesn't look at the multidimensional aspects of poverty. So it's actually quite limited, but it does play a very important rhetorical exercise in exposing the limitations of the World Bank's uh, poverty line. Okay, so if, we, so if our concern is about a higher poverty line, say $10 a day, and we're saying that, you know, we need to raise this line because people on very low incomes below $10 a day, they're still working incredibly laborious jobs. And as you say in your book, that when you look at the, uh, the, the income, you're not looking at how much work and how much backbreaking, dangerous, uh, soul destroy, you know, for example, if we talk about shipbreakers in, in India, for example, you know, the kind of labor that people have to do in garment factories, you know, a 12 hour day being normal, being awful rations, uh, sexual harassment, Me Too, or, or, or prevailing there. So you're so okay. So say you say we need to look at people's livelihoods, look at what they do and need to do in order to get those incomes. If we raise the line, do we find that global economic integration is reducing poverty at, the, at that higher line? Well, um, again, it's complicated because uh, if you just increase it a little bit uh, to say two or two point five dollars compared mm. to the uh, in the early 2000s is $1.25. Uh, what you see was uh, you have a reduction of the numbers living under $1.25. Mm. You have an increase of those living under 2 and under 2.5, quite substantial increase. And so a lot of the World Bank type and even quite critical people of the World Bank were saying, oh, lots of people are graduating out of extreme poverty mm. into normal poverty. Mm. Uh, so that's the way they've seen it. They frame it in a sense of, and this goes back to the first point about economic yeah. growth, integration, poverty reduction, and it's that ingredient. Mm. The point is, the alternative narrative should be, given the amount of global wealth, how much faster can we reduce poverty than it is being reduced? Yeah, I think that's the critical question, because it's not just in absolute terms, is poverty reducing, but is poverty reducing as fast as it could be, given how freaking wealthy we all are, right? Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, you know, we need to look at counterfactuals, right? Which is why I find your set of policy recommendations for labour-led development really interesting. Could you talk us through those, Ben? What, are, what is labour-led development? Yeah, okay, so labour-led development, I mean, this idea has, has got several layers to it. So, first of all, um, you know, when, when students, uh, when we are reading about development, we often, the ma majority of the time, we get a sense that it is one set of elites talking to, to another mm. and discussing, debating, arguing, critiquing each other about what are the best sets of policies, policies that they can implement on behalf of for mm. the majority. Um, and so, and, and not only that, but they also they talk about capital centre development, which is all about the uh, accumulation of capital, accumulation of wealth as the basis for good policies for 
the rest. Mm. So within that context, you can have quite a wide variety, I suppose. You can have a kind of hardcore neoliberal, mm. but you can also have some kind of distribution mm. uh, which facilitates capital accumulation mm. and so on. So I started thinking about, well, this is a elitist and you know, what, what does it say for progressives and socialists like us who want to think about uh, development in a slightly different way? So I came up with the idea of labour-centred development, mm. which is the idea that basically you start, when you think about development, you start by looking at conditions for workers, conditions mm. of labouring classes, how they relate to other classes. Mm. So it's a class relational perspective, labour-centred development. Um, and that was in my book, The Global Development Crisis. And then I thought, well, actually, that's a good starting point, but that's just a starting point. What you need to do is specify a little bit more. And so then in, my, in the struggle for development, I have this kind of three-point, three-form categorization mm. where I speak about pro-labour development, mm. which is good-hearted elites uh, implementing good policies for the many. So it could be like cash transfers yeah. from above. That's better than taking away welfare. Okay, yeah. so I'm all for pro labour development, even yeah. though it's still done by the yeah. elites. But that's not the only. That's not the be all and end all of pro labour development. You've also got labour driven development, mm. which is where uh, mass movements from below push elites to deliver uh, real reforms. And then you've got what I consider to be the really important contribution, which breaks away from most development studies, which is labour-driven, uh, sorry, labour-led development, which is collective actions by labouring classes themselves bringing about and uh, change and transforming their existences for the better. So labour-led development is collective action from below, uh, by the many, for the many, in many ways. Can you give me an example of what that, that might be? Yeah, so in the book, uh, I give quite a few Examples, some of them are quite well known. Mm -hmm. I mean, I give the example of the Landless Labourers Movement in Brazil, which has um, recolonised, taken back something like um, you know land for over a million people uh, since the 1980s. Uh, these were the uh, landless labourers who were thrown off the land uh, from the 1960s onwards in Brazil because of the conservative modernisation mm -hmm. process there, the huge kind of massive intensification of agriculture. Um, they're thrown off the land, they went into the favelas, the shanty towns, and they were expected to reside there waiting for some benign policies, which mm. never came, because obviously in the 1980s, they had structural adjustment, debt, etc. Mm. Uh, and so what did they do? They started organising themselves and taking back land, uh, planting the land, organising themselves into communities, uh, making contacts with people like us, very privileged people like us in universities, and saying, we want to have universities, will you teach us A, B and C? They said to their academics, we want you to teach us a, B and C, mm. as opposed to saying, um, waiting for the academics to come mm. and tell them what they needed to know. Mm. So this is an example of broad ranging, and it had all kinds of dimensions for uh, the workers' livelihoods themselves, for the families, uh, for gender dynamics in many ways. And this is a very progressive uh, example. I mean, another example is in Indonesia, where, as you know, there's been a massive palm oil expansion, a lot of uh, poverty-inducing mm. growth there. Uh, that is massive economic growth based on poverty wages, 2012, 2013, 2014, huge strikes, huge demonstrations, yeah. massive increase in the minimum wage to the point where people are saying, well, this wage is now uh, a kind of living a decent wage. Whether it is or not is one thing, but the fact is that they pushed for it and they got it. Okay, so I, and, and this also happened in Indonesia in the 1990s. There were mm. like protests and we saw the wages go up. But what happened in the 1990s, as far as I'm aware, is that after the wages went up, some of the buyers went elsewhere because buyers want their lowest cost possible and those partly comprised labour costs. And while I t I'm totally with you on absolutely wages go up when there are mass strikes, we do have a problem of countries, of workers competing against yep. each other. 
So how does labour-led development work in a context of global economic integration when yeah. we do see a race to the bottom for poverty wages? I mean, how, how, yeah. how can workers protect against that? Well, um, first of all, <clears throat> the race to the bottom and the kind of global outsourcing and the creation of multiple platforms mm -hmm. of production and export um, is a very handy way and it's been uh, pursued deliberately by transnational corporations um, to uh, make workers compete against each other to break solidarity and to push wages down. So in a sense there's nothing natural about that, that's been pushed very much and backed up by structural adjustment programs which has reduced barriers to trade and so on. So there are kind of structural but also kind of a gentle uh, kind of factors at play there. But I think in um, your work as well you show about how kind of global standards can be implemented uh, from the north, from the south and so on to have some kind of regulatory effect uh, on uh, the worst excesses such as child labour, uh, coerced labour and so on. And so that is also something that's uh, quite important. Uh, I mean I don't touch upon that in the book but uh, that is definitely something that is an important feasible so it all sounds very lovely landless people's movements and strikes and, and all yeah. these great powering collective processes so but do you think it's politically feasible I mean how would we make that world happen well okay so one of the things that we as academics and we as students of development mm. we always get thrown back in our face uh, we can outline a uh, you know what we think should be the situation mm. we can outline our consideration of what a good life is mm. um, and we can bemoan how uh, neoliberalism and capitalism is wrecking the planet and so on. Mm. And then you get people saying, but what do we do? Mm. What do we do for them? Uh, and so on. Uh, and so that's one of the kind of big issues that we need to consider. How do we, what role can we play? Mm. And so you asked the question, how feasible is it? Um, well, one of the roles that people like us, who are, we are privileged people, mm. we are in some ways part of some sections of the elite perhaps, it depends how you define it. We are the a establishment of, then. We are part of the establishment perhaps. Uh, I mean a lot of students, a lot of us end up working in some kind of policy, advising mm. policy. So one of the things I think that uh, progressive policy makers can do is to try and think about how to implement pro-labour development and how to try and create as much space as possible for labouring class movements to actually Act, be active themselves, mm. uh, so not cracking down on them. Uh, you know, getting rid of, say, anti-trade union laws, for example, mm. uh, making it possible for workers to take over land and cultivate it. Making it possible for workers to take over factories and cultivate it uh, and, and work in the factories and so on. So there is a role for people like us, even though we are not on the ground there doing those kinds of struggles that I point to, like the MST. Mm. Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much, Beth. Thank you. Thank you.